according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. several bulletin announcements that I'm not going to try to read all of them, but I'm going to give you a, a smattering of some of it, okay? Uh, WMO, which is Women's Missionary Outreach, okay? That's what it stands for. So we have all these little code words, you know, or little abbreviations. I feel like we're the federal government sometimes, you know? It's like we got a, a bill here or something. Uh, Women's Missionary Outreach, which basically is the gals in the church supporting missionaries around the world. And so they come and they do some projects that help those missionaries. Thursday, uh, I believe it's Thursday. It's in the bulletin, but I believe it's on Thursday. So you can check that out. Uh, okay, here's another code word for you, shins. It's actually in the Bible. I read it, okay? Uh, there's one verse in the Bible that mentions shin, okay? And we have a group that's the those who are, uh, well... They welcome anybody, but 60 and older, kind of, and uh, they're having a party. They like to party. They're a good group. They've been together for a long time, and so they, they, they party hardy, right? I, I, I kidded one time. They have shindigs, okay? You know, we see, when I was a kid, we used to call them shindigs, but they have shindigs, all right? One's coming up, sign up, table, sign up out there on the entry, in the entry on the welcome table, so you can have a party in that. Uh, little free food pantry. Creekside Church partners with Arbordale, which is next door, a retirement community, to provide the little blue box out in our parking lot with non-perishable food items for those who are in need. No questions asked. They just come and, and take what they need. The folks at Arbordale supply, uh, stock it, and we help supply it. So if you want to bring to that, that's all this next week. Come drop it off next Sunday. Appreciate that. Also ask you to be continuing your prayers for uh, Lauren Cram and her family, as they mourn the loss of her mom, continue to pray for her, a lot of other people with needs. I'm going to take a, a moment or two right here uh, to be praying for the whole situation in the Ukraine. Uh, I know personally, uh, a pastor friend of ours and his wife with five children are uh, serving in, in the Ukraine, and we have other friends and people that we know that are connected or near there. Uh, in Romania, our own church missionaries here, the Calderons and the Akins have asked us to be praying for them. They're in Romania as they receive refugees who are coming in from the Ukraine. We just, it's a, it's a really horrendously difficult situation. So I'm going to pray as we open our service. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you knowing that you are the God of all grace and the God of all comfort. And I pray right now for the situation in the Ukraine as uh, Russian forces are invading and the Ukrainians are trying to defend themselves. And I just pray that you would give our brothers and sisters in Christ grace and mercy and kindness, not just in the Ukraine, not just in Russia, but in the surrounding areas, Lord, and in the surrounding countries, we pray that they'd have physical stamina and strength. And I ask that you would give uh, the Calderons and the Akins, I pray for Sasha and Lena and others who are on the front lines there, that you would give them grace and encouragement. I pray that you keep them safe and well, that you protect them. And I ask that you would 
work somehow, Father, to bring a, a quick and speedy resolution to the horrendous loss of life and pain that's being caused. We pray, Father, that you would take us into your presence now in our spirits, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that we'd receive from you your word for what it really is, the word of God and not the word of men. Help us to hear what you want us to hear, and I pray that you'd help us to be very careful to apply the things that you want us to apply to our own personal individual lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. My first solo weeding of the family garden came when I was about seven years old. Dad sent me down. We had a little garden plot in the neighborhood we lived in. And he said, go down and, you know, hoe the garden, the weeds. He took me down there. He dropped me off. And I got my hoe out. And I pretty much hoed everything off that was growing. I hoed off all the potatoes. That was about the only thing that was actually coming up at that time. It was early in the spring. I didn't know the difference between a potato or a mustard weed or a water grass. I just knew it was green, and so I was, I was doing it. My dad was disappointed, but he didn't disown me. When I was 16, I was driving the family vehicle, and I couldn't figure out what in the world's going on. There was no heat coming out of the car. This is in the wintertime, you know. There's no heat coming out of the heater heater and I was like ooh no. so I got got I drove 12 miles from where I, I had gone and I was coming home and I got home and I got to the stop sign in our town and the car stopped little did I know that all of the coolant in the radiator had leaked out before I had started and so I'd been driving for 12 miles with basically no coolant in the radiator and for I'm not a real mechanic or whatever but I, it's just not good okay uh, and basically I warped the heads on the, on the engine because it just seized up because there was no coolant to cool, cool the engine. It's a very, very expensive repair bill. Again, my dad was really, really uh, not happy, but he, he didn't disown me, okay? He was really disappointed and he didn't own me. Despite my failures as a child growing up, my, my father's love never faltered for me. And this morning, as we turn to a passage in Scripture, we're going to be reminded that, you know, my failures and my dad's faithfulness in the midst of my failures pales in comparison to the faithfulness of our God and especially his son, Jesus Christ, in the way he deals with us in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our frailties, in spite of our failures, our God and Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus, have demonstrated and demonstrated specifically in the passage we're looking at this morning as Jesus is uh, taking His disciples from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there He lays out for them, He demonstrates for them and for us that His His commitment to direct them and even die for them in spite of their weakness, in spite of their failure, I think is a bold testimony to us of God's grace and faithfulness when we are so weak and frail. I invite you to take your Bibles or your phone or your device or whatever you have that you want to get to your I never know how to say that you know it's like I think I've heard other people say it but just if you can if you have a bible app on your phone or your 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 
iPad or your tablet or your computer or whatever, or if you just like old school, have a Bible, which is you know, highly recommended, um, turn to Matthew 26, if you would. I'm going to read verses 31 through 46, and as we walk through this passage, uh, there are three scenes from, from Jesus' life immediately after that upper room that, that expose our human frailty. Not only to expose our human frailty, but they emphasize that God the Father, through His Son Jesus Christ, is very loyal to us. All right? And, and this enables us to know spiritual victory, and it also accentuates for us, I think, God's mercy. Because when I know that, I mean, when I know that I'm messed up, but God is gracious and the Lord Jesus went to the cross for me in spite of it. It's like, wow, okay, that's, that's really cool. I'm in Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, that then is after they sang a hymn and went out, okay, all, you will all fall away because of me. That'd be a good way to start, wouldn't it? Okay, we're singing a hymn. Now, we just got done singing hymn, so we get on the hymn. Okay, you guys are all losers, That's a great way to start. But Jesus says, okay, you'll all fall away because of this, this night. You'll all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, that this very night before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came, and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hours at hand, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. The first scene, in this first scene, the, Jesus, I believe, uh, exposes the frailty that's within us. Now, I say within us because I think we're no different than the disciples 
that we're with Jesus because we're human and we're frail. Jesus exposes two forms of frailty, at least two forms. And again, when I say these things, I'm not saying I have the definitive word on it, the last word on it. It's just the two things that I saw in the text. First, he exposes that our, we have this uh, tendency for desertion. All right. Jesus took the 11 disciples. Remember Judas, he'd gone out already because he was going to betray Jesus. So there are only 11 left. And so he took the, uh, so he took the 11 and he went to the Mount of Olives. You kind of see a theme here. The Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives. It's, a lot takes place on the Mount of Olives. Where he made his first promise. And there are a series of promises that Jesus makes that kind of emphasize what he's trying to reveal and expose and emphasize. And the first promise was of their desertion. And that was verse 31. He says that all of you, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away from me. Now, as I had a... One of my profs in seminary, said, seminary used to say, all means all, and that's all all means. So that means all of them were going to desert him and fall away, from, fall away from him. These are the ones about whom John writes, they have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So these are solid followers of Jesus. And he says, you're all going to desert me. All will fall away because of me, he says, this night. It tells us that the circumstances were coming. Somehow there were going to be circumstances connecting them to Jesus that would cause them to feel like they needed to run away from him. Anybody here have, uh, anybody, anybody here ever a teenager? <laughs> Most of you were a teenager or you're, you're going to be a teenager. As a teenager, one of the things that we used to do as teenagers was it's kind of okay to be around dad and mom. But when you're with your friends, no, I don't know. I don't know who that is. You know, that's not my mom. That's not my dad. I don't even know who that person is because you're embarrassed. And so you want to hide and, and keep away from them. Jesus' arrest, we're going to see in the text as we march through it, would create fear. A fear of punishment. Maybe fear of persecution. Perhaps even fear of death that would cause them to go, I'm out of here. And then we see that when he was crucified, that would even heighten their fear. And so Jesus says, you're going you're gonna to desert me. And he said, you're going to do it this night. Now, this wasn't a permanent rejection. It was just more of a, I don't want to associate, like the teenager thing. Okay, But notice that Jesus would face the cross with courage as his disciples cowered in the background Jesus marched to the cross while those closest to him hid in the shadows there's a second promise that emphasizes our failure he says for it is written I will strike he gives evidence you know his confidence that this was going to happen his confidence that they were going to desert him is given by a promise from the Old Testament. <clears throat> in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, sword, against my shepherd and against my man, my associate, declares the Lord of armies. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Jesus is the shepherd who will be struck down in his crucifixion. Now notice the text of Matthew says... I will strike down my shepherd. Who's I? 
It's God the Father. It's part of God's plan that he would strike his son. And the sheep refers broadly to Israel, but specifically manifests through the disciples. And they would scatter. They would scatter, they would fall away, and they would fall away refers to what would happen that night. They would scatter that night and then further be lurking around, but the scattering has to do with Jesus' arrest and their running away. If you have your Bibles open, you turn over to verse 56. But all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They left him and fled. But the agony would be turned into a victory. Their their desertion would somehow be redeemed if you read verse 32. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Which is the third promise, right? The third promise. I will be raised and go ahead of you into Galilee. It would be the turning point that would bring them back in partial, not uh, partial and initial fulfillment of all of Zechariah chapter 13, verses 7, 8, and 9, which promises that there would be a, a restoration and a remnant of his people that is, is yet to be fulfilled, but he, he, he is going to do it, at least initially, through the resurrection and bring his people, the disciples, back to him. So you see, and, and he did rise from the dead. We're getting there, right? We're in Matthew chapter 26. We're getting to chapter 28, verse 7, when he's risen. He's not here. He is risen, you know. But so what was promised back in chapter 16? Jesus says, you know, uh, we're going to go into Jerusalem, and, and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, and then I, on the third day I will rise. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 20 through 22, Matthew chapter 20, verse 19, he, he has promised that he's going to die, and he's going to rise again. both are here i'm going to die be struck down and i'm going to rise again and when i rise again that's what's going to happen and our faith in these facts is the basis upon which we have a relationship with god and are saved i want you to look at romans chapter 4 and verses 20 verse 25 through chapter 5 verse 1 which is the next verse he who was delivered over because of our wrongdoings or on account of our sin And he was raised because of or in order to bring about our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The death of Christ paid the debt we owe. The resurrection of Christ proved the victory over sin and death. It's our faith in these facts that brings us into relationship with God. The forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. And Jesus is laying out for him. Right here. It's the death. I'm going to die. And when I rise again, things will be restored. The question I have at this point is, do you believe that? And if you don't, I implore you to consider it more fully. Because your eternity rests in the balance. And if you do, then let's rejoice in it and understand it more fully. Uh, if you believe, it's not going to be easy. As the disciples found, right? These are the people who believed that he was the Christ, and guess what happened? It got tough. 
John chapter 15 tells us the same thing. In John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Uh, love, it would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And this hostility towards us as Christians, it could cause us to stumble, just like hostility towards Jesus and his disciples were there caused them to stumble. I mean, think about it. It's very possible that we could stumble as a result. And so here we see Peter, um, verse 33, Jesus promised you're going to do it. After I've rise, you go to Galilee. But Peter answered, he said, to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Oh, really? See, he's repulsed by the thought that he would deny his Lord, right? And so what does he do? He arrogantly claims that uh, somehow he's superior in his loyalty. Read it, read it again. Even though all would fall away, Jesus, I'm better than these guys. I'm not a screw-up like them. Even though all fall away, so he, he pledges superior, he has this, he, he claims superior loyalty, and then he makes this pledge of, of devotion, a definitive pledge of devotion. And in doing so, what's he doing? He's denying what Jesus had just said is going to be true. You're going to fall away. Oh, no, not me. Jesus said it, and he's denying it. Not the first time. Old Peter had his foot in his mouth. Remember back in chapter 16? Lord, you can't go and die. You're not going to die. No, no, far be it from you. Uh, Jesus said, would you get behind me, Satan? John chapter 13. Jesus takes a, a, a towel and a basin and he's going to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter says, oh no, you're not going to wash my feet. He's denying what Jesus said. He's saying, no, that's not going to happen. So he's, he's denying what he says. Impetuous Peter. And, and, then, and then he's demeaning the other people, okay, his, his other disciples. He's exaggerating his own sincerity, and he's underestimating his own frailty. I'd never do that. Oh, you have no clue, Peter, what's coming for you. It wasn't his first errant claim, and I pointed him out. And the thing that I take away from this is, here's Peter, here's the disciples, all of us are capable. Every one of us, despite our elevated view of our own devotion, all of us are capable of denying, deserting, and disappointing our Lord, if we're a follower of Jesus. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you don't believe, well, you don't really care. But you should, because it's not good for you. I want you to hear a story about a guy that I read. I read this in uh, Charles Colson's book, The Body. I read it a long time ago, but I remember this story vividly. It's about a guy, and I'm going to butcher his name, how to pronounce it, but I think it's Yehiel Denure, okay? Yehiel Denure was a, a survivor of Auschwitz, and he was there to witness the execution of Adolf Eichmann. 
who was personally responsible for the execution of millions of Jews during World War II. And when Yehiel Denuer, his eyes met Adolf Eichmann's eyes, he collapsed on the floor and began sobbing. Why? Here's why. I was afraid about myself, Denuer said. I saw that I am capable to do this, exactly like he. Eichmann is in all of us, he said. At that moment, he came full face and fully aware, face to face, with the fact that sin is part of the human condition. We're witnessing it on the world stage right now in Ukraine. It's part of the human condition. We say, well, I would never do that. And Yehud Denuer says, no, I am capable of this. As I said before, each of us is capable of denying, deserting, and disappointing Jesus and God the Father. And get away from our Christian fellowship, you know, and uh, our job is on the line. You know, you're out there on your own, we're on the workplace, and, and, and your job is threatened. You're out there on your own and could be ridiculed by your classmates, could be rejected by your family, could suffer financial loss if you really stand up for your convictions and your faith. Better not be overestimating our commitment to Jesus. Can we unequivocally say, I would never fall away from Jesus. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't deny him. I wouldn't fall away. I wouldn't do that. No. And Jesus highlights a, a, a second failure, not just desertion, but denial. In response to Peter's arrogance, which is obvious that Peter was arrogant, uh, Jesus gives a third promise uh, of a greater offense. Not only will you desert me, Peter, you're among all of them who are going to desert me, but guess what? You have the single privilege of knowing that you're the only one who's going to deny me. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Okay, Peter, here's the deal. In your cockiness, I'm going to send a cock to crow so your sin is exposed and you're condemned. It's going to happen before a cock crows. You're going to deny me three times. Peter arrogantly dismisses Jesus' promise and he doubles down. Verse 35. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. But notice the other disciples said that too. Oh yeah, us too. Ditto. No, I'm with him. If we have to die, die we, will not, we will not deny Jesus. No, not going to happen. Peter's example proves that good intentions don't get it done. Good intentions don't get it done. They won't keep us from failure. Every one of us is capable of desertion and denial. I want you to watch this, watch this little clip from, uh, from the movie God is Not Dead and, and see uh, if you can feel a little bit of the tension that might be there. Can we? I'm Professor Radisson. 
and this is philosophy 150. I would like to bypass senseless debate altogether and jump to the conclusion which every sophomore is already aware of. There is no God. All that I require from each of you is that you fill in the papers I've just given you with three little words. God is dead. Mr. Wheaton is... Okay. Philosophy 101 college professor comes in and says I'm just going to jump to the conclusion that we should all accept and that is that there is no God and I want you to just take a piece of paper out and write on the piece of paper God is dead now a lot of you are never going to have that experience I had a similar experience or something like that when I was in my humanities class at the at the bastion of conservatism uh, University of Northern Iowa with Joe Fox as my professor who was a, a vowed atheist and he asked everyone in the room who was an evangelical Christian if they would stand up 300 people as college freshmen and you're supposed to do so I, this is the best I can recall it so maybe I'm not getting it all right it's been a few years ago okay so I'm just thinking and you know it's like Who's going to do that? You're kind of looking around to see. So are you going to stand? I think I, I stood up. Okay. Uh, but the point is not that. The point is there'll be times when we're pressured in our, with our faith. Our association with Jesus will put us in a place where we want to affirm him. We want to support him. We want to stand. But we're afraid to. And what will we do? How will we handle it? You know, uh, it took tremendous courage for that one of the students in the movie. He, he didn't write it on there. But being ashamed of Jesus really has no place. Second, Tim, Second Timothy chapter 1, verse, verse 12 says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to keep, protect what I have entrusted unto him until that day. It's not a place for us to cower, but it's possible that we would. You know, there's a song that we sing, um, and how, how's it go? I, I will honor you in all I do. I will honor you in all I do. Whenever that song is sung, I try to remember to say, I want to honor you in all I do. Because I don't honor him in all I do. And so I can stand piously and say, I will, I will honor you in all I do. <laughs> really? I mean, especially if Marla's standing there, she's going. <laughs> Seriously. And I, so you realize that we're capable of this. We're capable of any sin, and there's no excuse for it. If you don't know Jesus, he wants you on his side. So that he can empower you and give you the grace and the strength to resist these temptations. If you know Jesus, he wants us to stay connected to him so that we can stand firm. And he's not going to desert us. He's not going to abandon us. That's his proven that. He won't do that. But sometimes we may desert him. And there's grace and there's forgiveness in it. There's a second step. There's a second scene in the drama. And that is that Jesus experiences failure from us. He's predicted it. And now he's about to experience not even what he predicted yet. What he predicted is coming later. What he experiences is the failure in verses 36 through 45. And they go to Gethsemane, literally the, the, the oil press. 
So there must have been an oil press there, or there was at one time, you know, there was an oil press there. And so they knew this is the place where the disciples went with Jesus to rest and to pray and to relax and to chill out. And, 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 and they knew the place. It wasn't a foreign place. And it's in this garden, which the Bible never says it was a garden, so we just say it was a garden. But in this garden, there's kind of an interesting uh, counterbalance between what Jesus does in humble submission and obedience to his Father as compared to what his ancestor Adam did in the Garden of Eden, where disobedience and rebellion were his path, and Jesus was in obedience to him, to his Father in in his path. Here in, in Gethsemane, those closest to Jesus failed him miserably (laughs) providing us with tangible evidence of our own frailty which should lead us to believe that we too could be those who would fail him in the same way and we would act you know I can't say well if I was in the garden you know I mean I'd have been way better than them you know I mean seriously and I'm not even a night owl but I, you know, if Jesus, I, I would have been there. No, we can't say we would act more admirably, admirably than, they, than they would do it. In the garden, Jesus had plans. He had plans for two groups. First of all, the text tells us that in verse 36, and Jesus came with them, that is the, the 11, to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, stay here while I go over there. So 11, you stay here while I go over there and pray. So I'm going to go pray, so they should know something's up. Then he took three, Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he had plans for them as well. And so he went over uh, in another place, and Matthew then records a series of three events that are repeated. It's the same event (laughs) three times, right? And he reveals this repetition in order to emphasize Jesus' distress, to stress to us Jesus' dependence upon and his determination to be obedient to his Father, and to show how disappointing his followers can be. He asks a favor, first of all. Verse 38 and verse 41, he asks a favor. Then he said to them, that is Peter, James, and John, My soul is deeply troubled to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Now, we don't know what keep watch means, but I think it doesn't mean go to sleep. Okay? Because you can't watch when you're sleeping. So they don't know what they're watching, but they're not sleeping. Or they're not supposed to be, okay? So he says, keep watch with me. Now, notice the humanity of Jesus. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. If you went to a counselor, he'd say, you're depressed. It's not a complaint. He's not complaining. He's, he's sharing his heart, his human heart. The heart of the soul of the Son of God is... I, I'm feeling such oppressive weight that I I would just soon die. Now, it's coming up on a year since our daughter-in-law lost her father at the age of 60. He was 61 when he died. It's like 
just somehow that doesn't seem right. Doesn't seem right that I would do a funeral for uh, uh, a seven-month-old uh, premature baby that the mom lost in the womb. She gave birth. Well, she didn't in the womb. She, the baby passed away, and then she gave birth to a seven-month-old baby that was dead. This is the ache and the soul and the pain that we feel. And Jesus says, my heart is deeply grieved to the point of death. I can't comprehend, we can't fully comprehend the horror of what Jesus was about to experience, the desolate loneliness that he would encounter as the sinless Son of God took the weight of the world's sin and experienced the wrath of his loving Heavenly Father so that those of us who deserve that wrath would be freed from it and experience forgiveness. Betrayal. Now think about this. This is what Jesus is facing as he goes into the garden. What did he just tell his disciples? You're going to desert me. And you, Peter, Mr. Big Shot, you're going to deny me. But guess what? That, it gets worse. There's betrayal and, and there's denial and desertion by his closest friends. And then there is the mockery, the un- injustice, and the brutality of a crucifixion that awaits him. And he knows it's coming. And he says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And facing such agony, he goes to his closest friends and he says, would you just please pray for me? Would you just keep, that's all I'm asking for you right now. I'm I'm just asking that. Remain with me and keep watch. O'Donnell says it in his commentary, in Gethsemane there is no diluting of Jesus' humanness. Okay. Then he approaches the Father alone in prayer. Uh, three times he prayed. Now verse 44, I'm going to give you the verses. So in verse 39 and verse 42 and then verse 44. But in verse 44 it doesn't say that he prayed. It just says he said the same thing again. Okay, so I'm making the assumption there that he's praying. He did. I mean, that's what it is. And the record alternates between Jesus' um, intense and intimate interaction with the Father and the disciples sleeping. Jesus is going and pouring out his soul to the Father and comes back and the disciples are catching a few winks. And they're sleeping. Three times he offered the same prayer. And we learn some things about prayer from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. A couple of things for sure. First of all, he prayed honestly and actually honestly and passionately that Jesus prayed in in the Garden of Gethsemane. Notice each time, and again, verse 44 is not in the text that he says, my father. How did he teach disciples? Teach us how to pray, Jesus. What did he say? When you pray, say this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father. Here he's praying. My Father. Intimacy and vulnerability that God the Son enjoyed with his heavenly Father. And Mark says it even better. He says, says, Abba, Father. This is the Hebrew equivalent of Daddy, Daddy, help me. 
what he says. If possible, if it's possible. I love that. If it's possible. He's saying, is there some other way that we can do this? Is there an alternative to the cross that can accomplish your plan to redeem lost mankind? If it's possible for this cup. Well, that's kind of confusing. You go, oh, really? So he was drinking out there. No. The cup is the Old Testament imagery for the wrath of God. It's the suffering that he was about to encounter. And it's, it's not primarily, it includes his physical suffering, but it's primarily his spiritual suffering, his, his suffering that he would experience on the cross as he carried the weight of our sin, the complete wrath of God. Against man's sin was poured out upon him, securing our forgiveness. And he had to deal with the fact that the father, his father, my father, he says, would turn his back away. That's why the writer later will say, they heard him say, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkest period on the cross was the weight of the world's sin and the rejection, the returning away of his father with whom he had known intimate relationship from eternity past. If it's possible, could we do this another way? That's what he says. Jesus drank the full cup of judgment enduring God's wrath so that we, we could experience God's love. In his humanity, he was deeply grieved to the point of death. And that prospect, it was a prospect from which he, he wanted relief. In his humanity, he wanted escape. And he prayed fervently for it. Luke chapter 22, verse 44. That's the passage you know. He, he prayed and being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his, his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his humanity, he offered up both prayers and pleas with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his devout behavior God heard him the father heard him we've got friends we've got people missionaries people we know people we don't know brothers and sisters in Christ who are praying fervently crying out to God for safety in the Ukraine praying for deliverance and Jesus modeled the dependence upon God I don't know about you but it's okay to pray this way okay it's okay to to Go to God in prayer and say, Father, here's my plea. Here's my child who's walked away from you. Would you please, please, please redeem them? Here's my job situation. I don't know how to reach these people, but I want to share the gospel with them. Lord, here is my financial situation. I need your help. Here is my... And you fill in the blank. It's okay. God, the Son prayed that way and he wants us to pray that way God I am miserable in my physical condition would you please 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 hear my cry my sorrow is deep because of my loss would you comfort me father help 
he prayed humbly. The text tells us in verse 39, and he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face, prostrate before the Father. Abject humility. And he did it alone. Because he knew that in, in, at the deepest level, God was the only one who was going to help him. The Father was the only one who would help. He just said, these knuckleheads are going to run away, so who do I have? I have nobody but you, Father. The sinless Son of God, he sought a connection with the Father. And again, an example for us. And then in his prayer, he showed humility. What was the essence of his prayer? Verse 39, and he fell on his face and he's saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Now notice the last phrase. Yet not what I will, but what you want. Not my will, but yours be done. He put the will of the father above his own preferences. Above his own passionate plea. You know, it's amazing to me, and it's, it's, it's hard, but the prayer that pleases God commits to obedience to God regardless of how much it costs. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What? You mean I'm supposed to die? To myself? Uh, sorry, that's a little pricey. Wives, submit to your husband. What? He's a knucklehead. You chose him. It costs to follow Christ. So if you don't know Jesus, don't sign up. If you want an easy life. But let me tell you, if you don't sign up, you'll have a worse one. Not my will, but yours be done. How did Jesus teach his disciples to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. His will is always done in heaven. Sobering to realize that Jesus willingly submitted to the agonizing crucifixion to purchase our pardon. That's what it cost him. And it will never cost us more to follow Christ, then it costs Christ to obey his Father. Thirdly, he acknowledges the disciples' failure, verse 40. And he came to the disciples, now remember, these are the people who have just said, oh, Peter, not me, Lord, I will never fall away. And oh, by the way, I'm willing to die for you. And the other guys are, yep, me too, me too, me too. And where do we see? He found him sleeping. Oh, you're not going to run away, but you're going to sleep. 
when I'm at my deepest, darkest point in my life on this planet. Three times he saw them and came back and found them sleeping. First time he rebukes them through Peter, but it's the rebuke is for all of them, but he found them failing. And then he concludes in verse 1, you can't even hang in for one hour. And then he says, okay, here's the deal. Keep watching and praying. I find it fascinating. I just thought of this. God brought this to mind. I don't know. I haven't teased it out yet. But isn't it interesting that Jesus told Peter that you will deny me three times. And then three times Peter is sleeping, but Jesus is praying. And Jesus praying empowered him to go to the cross, and Peter sleeping enabled him to deny Jesus. Maybe if Peter had been praying, well, it would happen anyway because Jesus knew it because Jesus told him you're going to deny me. So we can't rewrite that history. Just thinking out loud here, maybe it shouldn't have been thinking that, but Jesus' example and his exhortation uh, call me, call us to vigilance and keep watching and praying the importance of doing that as a source of our strength for, for, for us, because the Spirit is willing. Our, our inner heart may want to pray, but the flesh is weak. I mean, you know, after 10 o'clock, folks, please, it's like, you know, Steve's brain shuts off, and he's ready for, you know, for turning off. And some of you, it's like, hey, I'm just waking up then. It's like, wow, this is like the world's alive at 10 o'clock. It's like, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God's people need... His power. We need His power to overcome weakness. We need to pray. Because we can't do it on our own. The disciples failed to heed His instruction. Look at verses 43 and following. And, and again He came and found them sleeping and their eyes were heavy. And He left them again and went away and prayed a third time. And He came and saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and he said, are you still sleeping? We're not going to run away. We would never deny you. We're just going to sleep. Also anticipated Peter's three, three denials. So he exposes our frailty then he experiences our failure but how does Jesus respond to all that he exemplifies faithfulness in the midst of our failure in the midst of our falling short Jesus marches to the cross verse 45 then he came to the disciples and said to them are you still sleeping and taking your rest behold the hour is at hand the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. The hour has come. Indicates the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Remember? Let's keep going back. The Son of Man. The Son of Man. Triggers in your brain. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. He is the Son of Man in the sense that He is human. But He's also the Son of Man in that He is the promised divine King. Who will sit on a throne forever. Who approaches the Ancient of Days. That's Daniel chapter 7. He's the Son of Man. But he's the son of God. Divine king. 
And with humble courage, Jesus resolved to plunge headlong into the personal agony to provide fickle humanity with the remedy for their souls, taking upon himself the wrath of Almighty God. For us. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 uh, says this, looking only at Jesus, the or originator and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. I hope and I pray that the Lord's pattern, the Lord Jesus Christ's pattern here, that he set for us for spiritual victory, depending upon God in prayer, and not just depending upon God in prayer, but being obedient to God regardless of the cost. And the overwhelming love for which he, which he demonstrated uh, would, would, would drive us to something. <laughs> would, first of all, this is the blanks at the bottom of your, if you're watching your outline. Okay? That it would drive unbelievers to repent and be saved. That it would cause those of you who are rejecting Jesus to say, look, you mean this guy, he's willing to die so that I could live. That it would drive us to repent and believe. That it would direct, it's the second blank, believers to pray and painfully obey. See, a love for God means that I'll choose what he wills over what I want. I'll choose what he wills. Not my will, but your will be done, Father. And I said before, he gave more than we ever can. More than we ever will. Thirdly, it should deepen our understanding of God's mercy and grace in restoring us. I mean, think about it. I mean, just think about, uh, become more aware of my unworthiness only accentuates God's greatness in redeeming me from the punishment I deserve. I see the wickedness of my sin, and it, mean, it should cause me to joy, <laughs> rejoice, right? Rejoice. Why me? Why me? And yet, it's true for all who believe. There's no better news that is the gospel. That is the good news. Wretched sinners rescued. We don't deserve it, but he rescued us. And it should delight us enough to boldly proclaim it to a lost and dying world. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. May the depth of our depravity accentuate the Lord's mercy in our lives as we remember His body broken and His blood shed. The taking of these simple elements which symbolize the sacrifice He made for us and they, they represent not just his 
physical pain, but his spiritual and emotional agony that purchased our pardon for all who believe. Consider his pain that paid the price and then celebrate. Take some time, confess your sin and get right with God before you take these elements and then thank him for what he's done. Let's pray. Father, think about it, Lord Jesus, man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. May you drive home these thoughts to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reminders today that your, your cross and what you've done for us demands our life, our soul, our all. And help us to count the cost and be, and be willing to follow you wherever you lead us. Um, we pray that as we go from this place that you will guide us, that we can, that we can follow you. Um, we pray that you will use the offerings that we have opportunity to give um, to further your kingdom and we know that you are at work all around us. Help us to be in the center of your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. My lighthouse, my lighthouse, shining in the darkness, I will follow you. Oh, my lighthouse, my lighthouse, I will trust the promise. You will carry me safe to shore.